0: Hi, and welcome to the Living Room Scripture Lessons. My name is Brad Constantine, and this set of lessons is from the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official recording of the Church, every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. There are several other Come Follow Me resources to help with your Gospel and Scripture study. These lessons tend to go a little deeper into the doctrine than most resources. Hopefully, this resource will be different enough from the others that you'll come back each week. On the Living Room Scripture Lesson website is a digital version of the lessons, which has more material that can be mentioned in the podcast. You can download that PDF resource and use it as you like. As with other online resources, you can like, share, and subscribe to the podcasts. Again, welcome to this Come Follow Me resource. I hope you like it. Hi, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me podcast. This discussion is going to be regarding Hebrews 7 through 13, and it's for the time period November 11th through the 17th, and it's lesson number 44. So uh, I'm having a little difficulty with this lesson because there are just so many good principles and doctrines in here that uh, I'm afraid I'm going to miss anything. So I don't want to skip over lots of stuff. So this may be a long one. So buckle your seatbelts and here we go. All righty. First of all, there are many informative concepts in chapter 7 about the priesthood, such as the ideas that uh, perfection comes through the Melchizedek priesthood, that the Melchizedek priesthood is not restricted to one lineage, that the priesthood is eternal, that it is received with an oath and a covenant, and that Christ's priesthood function continues eternally. This chapter could best be understood as a typology with Melchizedek, the Great High Priest, being a type of Christ, And the order of the priesthood held by Melchizedek and his people being typical of the order of the priesthood held by Jesus Christ and his disciples. And that was by James Carver in I Have a Question in the Ensign in 1986. So let's get started here. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we know who, we know about Melchizedek. He was the king over the land of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. Get it? Jerusalem. And his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Yea, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of, iniqu- of wickedness. But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of the high priesthood, according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days, therefore he was called the Prince of Peace, for he was the King of Salem, and he did reign under his father. And that's from Alma chapter 13, 17-18. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. In in this respect he is a type of Christ who is also both a king and a priest. Being a king and a priest is the natural consequence of exercising the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, and all holders of this priesthood are given the promise that they will someday be kings and priests under the Most High God. And when you think about it, a king is the is in charge of those things that are regarding the government, and the priest is that person that's in charge of the religious things. So here he's talking about both political and religious uh, being the ruler over all of it, of all of it. Uh, his position, speaking still about Melchizedek, in the priestly hierarchy of God's earthly kingdom was like that of Abraham his contemporary whom he blessed and upon whom he conferred the priesthood. Uh, The names Melchizedek and Salem suggest the uniqueness of the King of Salem and his people. In fact, the very name Melchizedek consists of the two Hebrew words Malki, which is king and sedek which is righteousness, implying the King of Salem's faith in God. My King is righteousness. Similarly, the Apostle Paul interpreted Melchizedek as King of Righteousness. Salem, the name of Melchizedek's land or city, may, uh, may mean peace or peaceful. The Bible Dictionary in the LDS edition of the Bible identifies Salem as Jerusalem. Biblical text discloses that Melchizedek was the righteous leader of a group of people who, who earned a reputation for peace and stability. Thus, in the midst of violent and chaotic times dominated by warring tribal factions, Melchizedek and Salem indeed appear unique. And we know that uh, from other scriptures that the people of the city of Salem uh, were also translated like the people of Enoch. Uh, Verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek was the presiding authority of God on earth in the day of Abraham, and as such the great patriarch paid tithes to and was blessed by Melchizedek. Verse 3, For this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order was without father, without mother, without descent, even or having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And all those who are ordained unto this priesthood, are made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. It was righteousness that qualifies one for the priesthood, not descent from Levi. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. And so he talks then about, um, so... So uh, let me just read you this from Paul. He says, Abraham is the pinnacle of religious history. He is the father of all righteousness whose supremacy is without dispute. Yet Paul is proving that Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. He also has to prove that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical tradition. The Jewish mind is going to be resistant to these ideas, especially because the scriptural record of Melchizedek is so scant. Hence, Paul invites now Now consider how great this man was of Melchizedek. Alma declared there were many before him, and also there were many afterwards, but none were greater. He was superior to Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to him. He was superior because Abraham was blessed by him. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Uh, and then in verse uh, 5, And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. And he's saying, what a, And what of Levi? The Jewish traditions appropriately held that Levi was inferior to Abraham. If Abraham were inferior to Melchizedek, then logic would dictate that Levi and the Levitical priesthood were inferior to Melchizedek and the Melchizedek priesthood. Paul expresses this idea with the figurative notion that Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek, being yet unborn in the loins of his father. Okay, uh, let's go down to verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. In other words, the law of Moses was fulfilled, so the higher priesthood came. James E. Talmadge said, The authority of administration in the temples of Solomon, Zerubbabel, and Herod was that of the lesser or Aaronic priesthood. For the higher or Melchizedek priesthood, otherwise known as the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, had been taken from Israel with Moses, the temples of the present are administered under the greater authority. The importance of the distinction between these two orders of priesthood may warrant a further consideration in this place that the two are essentially separate and distinct is made plain by Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews in talking about the differences in the priesthood, verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, in other words, not the Aaronic priesthood, but after the power of an endless life, meaning the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Smith said that the power of the Melchizedek priesthood is to have the power of endless lives. What was the power of Melchizedek? It was not the priesthood of Aaron, Melchizedek was a king and a priest to the Most High God. It was a perfect law of theocracy. Holding keys of power and blessings, he stood as God to give laws to the people, administering endless lives to the sons and daughters of Adam by kingly powers of anointing. And that was by Kent Jackson. And then down to 21. First uh, 20. Inasmuch as this high priest was not without an oath... In other words, uh, callings in the Aaronic priesthood are conferred without an oath, but 21, for those priests were made without an oath. In other words, while the Melchizedek priesthood is without father, without mother, without descent, meaning the the Melchizedek priesthood is eternal, uh, priesthood came by lineage, not by righteousness under the Levitical order. Furthermore, the Levitical priesthood had a beginning and it will have an end. Uh, I'm going to clarify that because it doesn't really have an end. Um, That's an incorrect statement. Um, It will have an end in the sense that those who have the Aaronic priesthood will receive the Melchizedek priesthood and the functions of the Aaronic priesthood will no longer be needed. Uh, However, Paul notes another significant difference, namely that priests of the Melchizedek priesthood receive a promise of God that they will be priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The the Levitical priests could not make this claim, being made priests without an oath. However, consider the following regarding the eternal nature of the Aaronic priesthood. The record of Joseph Smith that the Aaronic Priesthood is to remain on the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness may suggest to some that the Aaronic Priesthood is only temporary. Oliver Cowdery's earlier account is perhaps a bit more precise using the word that instead of until. In a special conference held in October of 1848 in Canesville, Iowa, Oliver, who had been excommunicated, arose to seek forgiveness of the church and bore his testimony. I was present with Joseph when a an holy angel from God came down from heaven and conferred on us, or restored the lesser or Aaronic priesthood, and said to us at the same time that it, would, that it should remain until the earth that it shall remain upon the earth while the earth stands. This statement is consistent with the Lord's declaration that the Aaronic priesthood continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God. There are several ways in which the Aaronic Priesthood may be considered eternal in duration. In one respect, everyone who holds the Melchizedek Priesthood also holds the Aaronic Priesthood for the following reason. The greater comprehends the lesser so that all who hold the Melchizedek Priesthood ipso facto hold the Aaronic Priesthood. When a person receives the Aaronic Priesthood and subsequently receives the Melchizedek Priesthood, none of the former authority is taken away. In in another respect, it has been taught that the church on earth, down to the office of deacon, has been organized after the pattern of the church which exists in heaven. This would imply that somewhere in our Father's house there is a place for the ministration of this lesser order of the priesthood. At least one realm in which this priesthood will minister is in the in the earths that will always be passing through a temporal existence. With respect to the functioning of the Aaronic priesthood on this earth after it has passed away and become celestialized, Joseph Fielding Smith has explained, as long as we have temporal things on the earth, this priesthood is necessary. Eventually, when the earth is celestialized, I suppose all priesthood will be of the higher order, meaning Melchizedek priesthood. Continuing verse 21, but this, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear, and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the oath and covenant of the priesthood pertains only to the Melchizedek priesthood, not the Aaronic. If you look that up, it's section 84, verses 33 to 44. Now Paul is going to use the uh, Day of Atonement, which is the celebration of the Jews in the fall, as an explanation of the life and the atonement that Jesus performed. um, In verse 26, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made ruler over the heavens, and not as those high priests who offered up sacrifice daily, first for their own sins and then the sins of the people. For he needed not to offer sacrifice for his own sins, for he knew no sins, but for the sins of the people, and this he did once when he offered up himself. Gerald Lund said that the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews drew heavily on the typology of the Day of Atonement to teach the mission of Christ. In that epistle he pointed out that Christ is the great High Priest who unlike the High Priest of the Aaronic Priesthood was holy and without spot and did not need to make atonement for his own sins before he he could be worthy to officiate for Israel and enter the Holy of Holies. His perfect life was the ultimate fulfillment of the symbol of wearing white garments. Uh, then verse 28, for for the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated or perfected forevermore. And so um, as the high priest entered the temple on that one day of the year, uh, Jesus uh, performed the sacrifice once for all. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the, of the majesty in the heavens. Again, he's talking about the, the high priest who performs the uh, ordinances during the, um, the Feast of Tabernacles during the Day of Atonement, and, uh, and that Jesus is the, is, the, is the one for whom they, they have been a model all this time. All right, um, let's see here. Here is Christ the Advocate, one who walked unscorched through mortal fires. The Advocate is literally the Father's Counselor who, from personal understanding, petitions for mercy for mortals. The petitioner asks not through mere pleading, but because he can boldly certify that he has paid the price of sin. The great truths of modern revelation show why Christ is an effective Advocate, for he satisfied justice and in trembling pain suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. And then down to verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Elder Holland said, On on those days when we have special need of of heaven's help, we would do well to remember one of the titles given to the Savior in the epistle to the Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, the more excellent ministry, and why he is the mediator of a better covenant filled with better promises. This author, presumably the Apostle Paul, tells us that through his mediation and atonement, Christ became an high priest of good things to come. And then down in uh, verse 8, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them God and they shall be to me a people he's talking here about the last days Uh, have you ever been in the temple and wondered why am i hearing the same thing over and over again we know that we learn by repetition but something else is happening God is fulfilling a promise he made to Jeremiah 2600 years earlier when you were in the temple ask yourself if God isn't putting his laws into your mind isn't he writing his law in your heart? We can't write down the temple ceremony, but the same finger which wrote the law of Moses and tablets of stone can write the law in our minds and hearts in the house of the Lord. Hence is the law written not with, hand, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy t- tables of the heart. Okay, uh, let's go down to chapter 9. <clears throat> Uh, Verse one, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, uh, which was built on earth. There were three main divisions in the tabernacle of Moses. The temple of Herod presumably was set up the same way. The first was an outer courtyard, which contained the altar of sacrifice and the large labor for washing ordinances. This is where the Levites performed most of the animal sacrifice spoken of in the Mosaic Law. This area represented the celestial kingdom. The second division was called the Holy Place. Both the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies were contained in an enclosure within the courtyard, the two rooms being separated by an elaborate double veil. The Holy Place was a room which contained the altar of incense, the table of shoebread, and the golden candlestick. Paul refers to this room as the first tabernacle. Performing ordinances in this room was common, but still considered a privilege. This was the room Zacharias entered when his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This area represented the terrestrial kingdom. The third division was the Holy of Holies. The most holy place or the holiest of all. Paul refers to this place as the second tabernacle. It contained the Ark of the Covenant and the holiest relics of the Mosaic tradition. Representing the celestial kingdom, only the high priest was allowed to enter this room, and this was only allowed once a year. None of the other Levites were allowed to enter, hence the symbolism of the ancient tabernacle was that neither the people nor the priests could be brought into the presence of God by the law of Moses. Paul doesn't miss the symbolism declaring that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which was a figure for the time then present. And so he's using the metaphor here of the, of the temple as being uh, the atonement of Christ, too. Down to verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by, but by his own blood. I'm going to back up a verse in verse 11 first. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And there he's talking about the resurrection that's going to happen, too. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained the eternal redemption for us. Once a year, a priest entered in, entered the holy place or the holiest place. Symbolically, he was only allowed in once a year because it would only take one sacrifice of the great high priest to pass the impassable barrier, the veil of the temple. The Aaronic priesthood had not the power to break the children, to bring the children of Israel into the presence of God. Accordingly, none of the children of Israel or the priests were allowed past the veil. What would it take to break the barrier? How could the chosen people ever break through the veil? It would take the infinite and eternal sacrifice of the Son of God. His entering into the holy place and sitting at the right hand of the Father opened the Holy of Holies to all who would be his disciples. Hence, when the great sacrifice was complete, the veil of the temple was rent in two pieces. Was it the earthquake that tore the veil? The veil was suspended on two rods. An earthquake might have knocked it to the ground, but it could not have torn it in two, from the top to the bottom. Rather, the temple veil was torn by the hand of God, symbolizing that moment when the great high priest had broken the great barrier, when he had split the blood, spilt the blood that could actually atone for sins, when the law of Moses and its temple ordinances had finally been fulfilled. Elder McConkie said, Deity rent the veil of the temple from the top to the bottom. The Holy of Holies is now open to all, and all through the atoning blood of the Lamb can now enter into the the highest and holiest of all places, that kingdom where eternal life is found. Paul, in expressive language, shows how the ordinances performed through through the veil of the ancient temple were in similitude of what Christ was to do, which he now having done let me say that again. All men become eligible eligible to pass through the veil into the presence of the Lord to inherit full exaltation. Uh, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of, of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall be the blo- shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to ju- to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serving the living God. For And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator or the victim. For covenant... For a covenant is a force after the victim is dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the victim liveth. In other words, Christ had to die to bring salvation. The testament or covenant of salvation came in force because of the atonement worked out in connection with that death. Christ is the testator. His gift, as would be true of any testator, cannot be inherited until his death. Christ died that salvation might come. Without his death, he could not have willed either immortality or eternal life to men. And then down to verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. Joseph Ealing Smith said that here is a clear clear statement that the remission of sins cannot come except by the shedding of, of blood, and that is of the blood of Christ. Since it was by the creation of blood that mortality came, it is by the sacrifice of blood that the redemption from death was accomplished. And all creatures freed from Satan's grasp in no other way could the sacrifice for redemption of the world from death be accomplished. Blood being the agent of mortality, it had to be returned to Satan and to death once it came. Alright, let's go then to verse 28. So, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation unto them that look for him. As the pure sacrificial offering, Christ was beyond sin, thus he gave for sin what sin could not rightfully claim. As the perfect high priest, he gave himself as the perfect offering. He was holy, innocent, spotless, set apart from sinners. He took on himself our blame, though without spot, or literally blameless. Thus, his culminating sacrifice superseded the daily sacrifices. That is the point of Paul's long arguments. Repeated repeated altar slayings were no longer necessary. For Christ died once for sins to bring forgiveness to all. That thought and number is restated over a half dozen times in about three chapters, revealing Paul's core message. Christ offered once sacrifice for sins forever. Let's go to chapter 10 then. Verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can can never with those sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect. In other words, you can't keep doing all these sacrifices It's not going to help in the future. The types and shadows of Mosaic rituals could not save. Only Christ can save. We see the same shadowed symbolism in our day, cast from the presence of the Almighty. The law of the gospel is for us a shadow of good things to come. The sacrament is a shadow of the atoning sacrifice. Baptism is a shadow of our entrance into the kingdom and our commitment to discipleship. The celestial room is but a, a shadow of dwelling in the presence of God. In mortality, our vision is limited, seeing shadows as if looking through a glass darkly. But someday we will see the light of the, of the world. Not through a glass darkly, but not as a shadow cast by the gospel of Christ, but then face to face. Uh, verse four, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. <clears throat> so in other words, the sacrifices of animals, as Elder Holland says, it's never it was never the sacrifice of animals that, that the Lord was wanting, but the sacrifice of our natural man. <clears throat> Uh, Down to verse 11, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Again, that's the same thing that he was just uh, alluding to. Verse 19, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the entrance of the high priest into the holy of holies and his passing through the, the sacred veil of the temple was a type for that future day when the Son of God would rend the veil to enter the heavenly temple and stand in the presence of God, having satisfied the demands of justice through his atoning sacrifice. Christ could now commence his great work of mercy and mediation in behalf of all those whose, in behalf of all whose labors attested that they had accepted him. By virtue of his mercy and grace, the faithful of all ages can now also enter into the holy place. All right, let's go to verse uh, 20. Um, 20 says, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having such an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled or purified. From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water like baptism, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider or understand one another to to provoke unto love and to good works. In other words, keep the commandments and be faithful. All right, let's go down to verse 36. For we have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So we, it's going to take us a while after we're while we're in this life to be perfected. Um, Elder, let's see, Elder Maxwell said, Could it be that only when our self-control has become total do we come into true possession of our own souls? All right, let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance, or the assurance, in other words, from the Joseph Smith Translation, Uh, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or proof of things that are not seen. And you can go to the Bible dictionary and see the definition of faith and read all that. There's quite a bit there. Elder Packer says, I recognize two kinds of faith. The first is the kind which is apparent in the world. It is the common denominator of most everything that goes on. It is the thing that lets us exist. It is the thing that gives us some hope of getting anything done. Everyone has it some in a larger measure than others. The second kind of faith, remarkably rare, unusual to find, is the kind of faith that causes things to happen. Faith is a power as real as electricity, except a thousand times more powerful. Now, did you ever exercise faith? Exercise it, practice it, you see, not just take it for granted. When you look at yourself, ask yourself, how faithful are you? It is a first principle of the gospel according to the Lord. Is it a first principle in the gospel according to you? So that's an interesting question. And if faith is power, how do we exercise that power? Verse 3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So the creations were made with God's power, and that God exercised faith. Joseph Smith said, Faith is not only the principle of action, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. Thus the author in, a, in, in the epistle of to the Hebrews says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Uh, verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. By uh, Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And then he goes on and lists uh, a bunch of other of the faithful patriarchs and the things that they had done by faith. Down to 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac and he had and he that had received the promise is offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting or considering that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. This is Paul's explanation that Abraham's faith was so strong that even if he did kill his son Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. And that's what that verse means there. And then he talks about in verse twenty by faith Isaac did this, twenty one Jacob did this, twenty two Joseph, twenty three Moses, and so on. He's giving examples here of those that have been that have been faithful. Verse twenty eight through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he be dis- he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. If they of the chosen seed had not believed in their hearts that the Lord Jehovah would spare their firstborn sons, the angel of death would have taken them as he did the firstborn of Pharaoh and all the families of Egypt. So it wasn't just a sprinkling of blood on the doorposts that saved them. It was their faith that, that, uh, that it would work, that uh, this was a protection by God. Verse 33: uh, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Again, talking about those that are faithful in the Old Testament too. Verse 40: uh, God, having provided some better thing through them, through uh, them through their sufferings, uh, for without suffering they could not be made perfect. Again, the the um, idea of of uh, overcoming weaknesses and uh, he says, God having provided some better things for them through their sufferings, for without sufferings they could not be made perfect. This rendition is in harmony with the overall message of the chapter, which is not talking about who died without the gospel, but rather about those who were valiant in the gospel, even suffering and dying in defense of it. So that's what this is chapter 11 was about, Verse t- or chapter 12. Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. In other words, get rid of our sins and the the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Again, having faith that the Lord is going to save us and we just need to do the things we can to repent and and to have patience in the process. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Elder Maxwell said, we must realize that the weight of the cross is great enough without our our also carrying burdens that we could jettison through the process of repentance. Paul gave us wise counsel in this regard when he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. It is much more difficult for us to carry the cross when our back is already bent with the burdens of bad behavior. Um, verse four, uh, or verse 5, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, uh, don't uh, let the trials that we have dissuade us or keep us from God. The, these are here for our benefit and our good. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening or correction or instruction, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Verse 9 Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that he might be that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are which are exercised. So it doesn't uh, the Lord's trying to to get us to stay on the path. And sometimes he needs to chasten us to do that. Richard G. Scott said, no one wants adversity. Trials, disappointment, sadness and heartache come to us from two basically different sources those two those who transgress the laws of God will always have those challenges the other reason for adversity is to accomplish the lord's own purposes in our life that we may receive the refinement that comes from testing and so that's another purpose of uh, of our trials is to to make us stronger and to make us better and to be better citizens and more fit to serve and to help other people all right let's go to chapter 13 um Verse 2, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Among those who serve God as angels, that is, as his ministers and messengers, are righteous mortal men. And so Paul, with perfect propriety, counsels the Hebrew saints to entertain other saints who may be serving on the Lord's errand as his messengers, his ministers, or his angels. So we know we have angels that watch over us too from time to time, but there are those among us, mortals, that are also like angels. Um, Verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Follow the counsel of the brethren, give heed to the general authorities, take direction from the bishop and stake president, pattern your faith after theirs, and follow their righteous examples. Then down to verse 20, "Now now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul's uh, that's the end of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, It's got lots of doctrine in there, as you can see. And uh, this is a good uh, remembrance of the atonement because of the sacrifices that the Israelites were performing that were all pointing to Christ. And he gives a very good um, explanation there in, in the in this in this uh, book about the atonement about the day of atonement and about the sacrifices that jesus made on our behalf i bear testimony that paul was a true prophet that he was uh, an apostle of the lord jesus Christ and that through him we gain lots of insights into uh, the atonement of Christ and i say that in the name of Jesus Christ amen hope you like this see you next time bye